The Good Nature Podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Nature, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. Hey, Sophia. Hey, Julia. Today is a very exciting episode because it is actually the last episode of our first season. And for this very special episode, we're very happy to have with us Angelique Sonko. Angelique is the superintendent of the Marine Protected Area Tubataha Reefs Natural Park. And that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site that is based in the Philippines. Tubataha Reefs is a strictly no-take zone for fishers, but it is open for tourism activities. And it is ridiculously biodiverse. So it has over 360 coral species, 600 fish species, 8 marine mammals, 100 seabird species. One thing that is really interesting about the way it's managed as well is the fact that Angelique, through her work, has been really good at protecting the reef by working with local population and tourists. And so I'm really curious to hear a bit more about how she works with all these different stakeholders. One of the reasons that I'm really excited to talk to Angelique is that she has crafted some really incredible relationships with local people and with her team in managing this protected area. And she has a great nickname. You know, we love good nicknames on this podcast. And hers is Mama Ranger. And obviously, she is the perfect final guest for this season as she is really into diving and love the oceans. And so obviously, that's the perfect fit for Sophia. It's the marine episode, finally. So I think without further ado, we should just have a chat with Angelique. Hi, Angelique. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I wanted to start this episode by asking you a bit more about what exactly drove your passion for the marine world. Well, as a child, I spent a lot of time in the rivers because I lived in a province before we transferred to Palawan. We were in in a province that was more or less landlocked. And so we spent a lot of time in the water and swimming and all that. So I was pretty much confident in the water. And yeah, when I finally saw the beauty of the ocean, it was just so different. And I was trapped, you know, I just had to to do something for it. You know, I live in an island and we're surrounded by the ocean and I was just curious what was in there. And so I got interested in diving and 10 years later, I studied to be a diving instructor. I first dived here in Puerto Princesa, I mean, close to our, in our province. And I was doing, you know, many dives here. But then one day I had the opportunity in 1982, in fact, to dive in Tubataha. I was an open water diver and it just completely blew my mind. You know, all the, I did not realize there were so many creatures in the ocean. And I saw from the 
tiniest ones to the giant whale shark and you know everything seemed to be there and then I realized that something so beautiful needed to be kept in that state you know it had to be protected and years later when I was working as a diving professional on the dive boats that would go to Tubataha uh, we would see their illegal fishers that would use dynamite or collect turtles and, you know, some, I mean, illegal activities like that. I was so happy to have been given the opportunity to work here and be able to do something to stop the decline of Tubataha. I learned to scuba dive and I began to spend so much time in the water and through the years, I noticed that the condition of the marine environment was deteriorating. And especially in the Tubataha reefs where I used to work as a diving professional, I realized that the values of the park was decreasing. There was uh, illegal fishing and all that. And I think it's, it's our nature to see that when we see something beautiful, we want to protect it. And so that is where my passion began. I, I get that. I think that those kind of first experiences of being in the sea can be so amazing of just kind of entering into this completely different world yeah you know i've done lots of dives here close to home but then the dives into bataha were really different that just kind of clinched it for me you know i just had to do something about the ocean when i first went there and saw how beautiful the ocean can be because then i realized that the place that i have been diving in for so many years is actually a degraded version of the real coral reefs in our country. And so I was seeing a pristine reef and it was just overwhelming. So you mentioned these first dives in Tubataha reefs, and those were before it was designated as a protected area. How has the reef evolved during the time that you've known it? How has it changed? Well, you know, when I was uh, diving there, I was not very aware of of the organisms and their functions and all that. I was just enjoying myself. I was looking at beautiful things. And now I understand better what is behind all this phenomenon. You know, for example, we see, you know, there's always these two fish that are always together and you wonder why. But now I understand these uh, relationships better. And so uh, I cannot compare that, you know, because I was looking at Tubataha with different lenses. And when the first time I went, I was just appreciating it. And, you know, now when I look at it, I worry if I see something that's wrong. And I'm now thinking we should do something about this. How do we change this, you know, or how do we improve this condition? Before I was just a tourist enjoying myself. And how does the, how was the state of Tubataha changed? Because of these different lenses, it's hard for me to tell, really. I, I really cannot say. Because the comparison is, you know, the measure is not the same. It's almost like you started to feel more of a sense of agency, maybe, or more of an ability to, to change what was going on there, do you think? Yes, because then I was tied, you know, like I was now linked to, to Tubataha. But while before I was just a visitor looking at it and enjoying it, now I was working. So I felt like, yeah, I had the obligation and the responsibility to do something. Maybe even if it's not even right all the time, you know. Like if there was coral bleaching, I would think like now we're suffering from coral bleaching. I would think, you know, what can we possibly do to change this? You know, even if there's really nothing we can do. I just feel like 
I must do something. And I'm just wondering, so you started, I believe you started working in Chibataha after it was designated as a protected area. Could you tell us why the government decided to start protecting it? No, I was working there before. It was a protected area. And, you know, the call for Tubataha to be protected started with scuba divers. And because they were the only people that could see Tubataha and was using it, you know, aside from the illegal fishers. And so the scuba divers were mainly from Manila, even pressured uh, the local government here. So what happens is that the local government of Palawan requested the president of the Philippines to protect Tubataha in 1987. And that is from the urging of this group of scuba divers who go there every year and are also alarmed by the degradation that they witness. And so finally, in 1988, the president established it as the first national marine park in the Philippines and also as a no-take zone. It is the first no-take zone in, in our country. Wow, that's amazing. How did the fishers react when uh, fishing was banned in the area? There was a lot of illegal fishing still going on. You know, the park was established in, in 1988. In 1989, we recorded the lowest coral cover. That's just a year after uh, declaration, you know. And that was because there was no enforcement to speak of. It was a paper park because, you know, it's so far. Uh, it cost a lot to protect it. It's difficult to put people there because the access is very seasonal. And so for a long time, there, was a, there wasn't any active enforcement that was going on. And so, yeah, the park was uh, not doing well in the first few years. And later, yeah, when we finally got our acts together and we had help from WWF uh, Philippines, from an NGO that... Uh, secured funds for us to be able to manage the park. It was when we were able to, you know, establish our presence there. And the fishers were not very happy. We had several consultations with fishers, you know, the, that used to go there. And eventually they said, okay, we will forego fishing in this area. And the local community that used to own Tubataha also said, okay, we will give up our fishing rights in exchange the management of Tubataha gives them a percentage of tourism revenues that is to fund their livelihood activities there. So until now, we have this particular partnership and we have also promised to, as much as possible, hire people from this small municipality to work in the park. What was the history of fishing in Tubataha? Before the Cagayan Silio people, you know, it's an island municipality about 80 nautical miles from Tubataha. The residents there had this rite of passage where they take young boys, like 12, you know, 13-year-old kids. They would go on a, they call it panko, it's a sailboat, you know, it's a local sailboat. They would sail to Tubataha, stay there for a month, catch fish, dry them, blah, 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 and all that. And so they teach the young boys to fish and all. And so that was in the early days, but then in the 70s, when we began to have the you know motorized fishing vessels, then it became unsustainable because then even people from other municipalities from faraway towns would come to Cagayan Silio, pay for fishing permits, you know, it's like less than ten dollars for a permit, 
hire the locals to go on their boat and then go to Tubataha and fish. And in some cases, they would uh, use uh, illegal methods. Some of Sometimes they would get turtles as well and turtle eggs and seabird eggs and, you know, just anything that is, you know, edible. And so after a while, it became unsustainable because people were beginning to use cyanide and dynamite. We even had foreign fishermen go there in the 80s. The community is only composed of 6,000 people, you know. They can't eat all that fish. And even in their own islands, they have a lot of fish. They just go on excursions, like one-month excursions, because the fish that they get there, they barter with other provinces. But then otherwise, for just ordinary day-to-day fishing, you know, they have a lot of fishing areas in their own municipality. But they were not causing the the degradation. It's just that when other fishers arrived from other places, that was when we had the problems. It's kind of interesting that, I mean, just in terms of the timing of the decades, that sort of happened at the same time as when scuba diving became widely accessible. And we were finally able to go underwater and even see what there was and kind of understand the marine environment in a totally different way. And you were saying that that a lot of the people who, like the people who were advocating for Tubataha to become a protected area were the divers. So do you think there was some kind of interplay there? Oh, yes. Yes, that's true. And I think there was also a tension because the local communities were saying, were wondering why these rich people can enjoy Tubataha while they cannot. You know, because when it became a park, they were told you can no longer fish here. It's a no-take zone. And then they wonder, how come we cannot use this park, which is ours, part of our community, but there's all these rich foreigners and rich Filipinos that come and use it. And so that was a point of tension for a while there. You know, you should think about the rich appropriating what belongs to the poor. You know, we had that issue for a long time. Also, you're right that uh, scuba diving became... uh, more or less mainstream at the, uh, almost the same time. Actually, I wanted to ask you a question about something that you touched on a little bit already. You received a prize in 2019 for your work protecting the reef biodiversity, but also meeting the need of the local population and tourists. And as you said, that must be a really tricky balance to make sure that all these different groups are happy. So how do you go about making conservation work for both locals and tourists? It's that Every stakeholder needs to forego of something. I mean, everybody had to contribute something of themselves or of what's important to them. It was important for the local communities to fish in that area because it's like a traditional fishing ground for them. But then in exchange for that, we had to share the revenues uh, in the park. And the dive operators, for example, that bring tourists have to agree to be regulated, you know. They had to forego some of their uh, quote-unquote freedoms that they used to enjoy there in exchange for for a product that is sellable. And that, you know, so everyone had to contribute something for for it to work. And I think... uh, then it becomes more acceptable. It's not just the communities giving up something and the other part uh, just taking in the benefits and the advantages, you know. 
So we all gave up something, but then we also benefited something from it. It's all about the compromises. Yes, that's true. But those compromises can be very difficult to reach. You know, I mean, having those conversations can be a real challenge and being able to convince people that if they give something up, they will get something back. Right. I mean, that takes a lot of trust. In the beginning, that was the most important thing for us is a confidence building stage of our relationships, you know, like we didn't know each other. We were just an aggregate of agencies that had to work together. And so, you know, we had to build trust. But you see, we've been here for 20 years and uh, we've been friends for a long time then. So, you know, uh, it's it's become easier, at least, you know, after decades but the, the good thing really is that after we were able to explain to the communities the value of Dubataha, uh, we never heard any complaints from them. You know, what was the major complaint at the beginning? They were saying, why is it that when you say Dubataha, you say, Dubataha Reef, Sulusi, Palawan, Philippines. It should be Dubataha Reef, Cagayan, Silio, Palawan, Philippines. They don't see their name in there. It was a major complaint, you know, it's like a pride of place, you know, just put our name in there just so that the whole world knows that this park belongs to to this community. And, you know, and since then we've used their name everywhere and they have really, really been very supportive of uh, the conservation of the park. And I mean, clearly you've been really good at building these relationships as well. I've seen that um, the local communities and your team members call you Mama Ranger, which is quite an affectionate nickname. <laughs> yes, because I nag too much is probably why. <laughs> How do you go about trying to maintain these close relationships uh, with your team members, but also the local communities? We keep communication lines open all the time. I mean, you know, like... I'm just talking to another person. I'm not talking to a mayor or something. On the personal level, I think it's very easy to get along with people. If you don't think that I'm the manager of this place and you're the mayor of that place and you're just like this and, you know, like if we just uh, treat everyone like, you know, ourselves, then it's it's really a lot easier. I don't know. I'm just a people person. I think this is a short version of it <laughs> i mean i think that's such an important aspect of it though we need we need people person to to build these bridges and build these relationships yeah and so often conservation is about people right it's about people convincing other people of the importance of these kind of natural spaces and having these more sustainable relationships with them and can i just ask what kind of enforcement do you do into bataha reefs because it's a no-take zone, enforcement is quite uh, straightforward. We uh, Every time we arrest someone, the Philippine Navy, the Coast Guard, Cagayancillo, and my office, those are four agencies, are involved in, in the filing of the case, and I'm usually the complainant. And in, 19, in 2007 to 2010, we filed over 400 cases, and we brought everyone to court. Not a single one got, you know, got off scot-free. We, we brought everyone to court. And after 2010, 
you would look at the graph and, you know, like you, we hardly have any cases. We did not wow. have illegal fishing cases last year. We had the year before somebody wandered into the park. But, you know, we no longer have that uh, uh, that problem. I think the strongman tactic worked. <laughs> it seems to have. And so now that isn't our major concern. Enforcement is our least favorite part of the job. That goes for the law enforcers as well. And we're just happy that it's over. But, you know, once in a while we would, yeah, one the other year and all that. We would really rather just not have to bring these people to jail because it's a lot of work. There's lots of tears. There's lots of acrimony and all that, you know. What makes you optimistic about the future of the oceans? You know, I think people have become more aware of the services and goods that come from the ocean. I mean, the the benefits that we get from this. And then science is able to show this to as much people as possible. That like before, you know, you, you'd have to look at magazines and all that. But now it's just, you know, everybody uh, can learn about it. And so there are there are people, young people now taking uh, you know the next generation of uh, of managers. Young people are showing interest in our you know. So I'm really optimistic because there's a lot of interest in marine conservation these days, and there's lots of support from people who may not even be in this uh, in this area of work. And yeah, there's hope. Our final question is one that we ask all our guests and it is if you had to make a case for one species and it could be you know an animal a plant or something else what would it be and why well i would really like to protect sharks they've been here for since forever and it would really be a shame if we lost them during our watch very they're very beautiful creatures in the water was that the species that impressed you the most when you went diving for the first time? Yeah, that was the species that uh, interested me the most. I'm scared and I'm awed, you know, like you have all these misconceptions about sharks when you go in the water and then you think like it's going to get you. But then and so there's also this awe that's, you know, that you look at this perfect animal and it's so beautiful in the water and it just knows what it's about. And, you know, they're beautiful. I agree. In my experience, when I've seen sharks underwater, it's just like they are so lean and so kind of just efficient. Like they just cut through the water in this crazy way. And you're like, yep, you've definitely been here for a very long time. Yeah. And I think that mixture of awe and fear as well plays a role. It's just that you you have that very strange feeling, at least when, when I'm underwater and I see sharks. it It just makes it very special. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to answer all our questions. That was super interesting. Well, thank you too. Wow, what an amazing conversation. I'm so happy that we finished our season with this special episode on marine conservation. Yeah, it was great. I loved hearing everything that Angelique had to say and then also hearing about the history of Tubataha. So thinking about all of the phases that this one place has been through. Now it's a protected area, but how it was also previously a place where young people would go to hone their fishing skills. After that, perhaps becoming somewhere that was overexploited um, and now being under this really interesting form of management. 
For sure, it was really interesting hearing all the different phases of um, this specific space. And also one thing that I really loved is how Angelique got connected to that place, right? When she started diving there. And one thing that particularly resonated with me is when she talked about when she first saw sharks and how that brought this sense of awe. And as a kid, I remember snorkeling and seeing a shell one day that was really beautiful. And I wanted to take it and bring it to my parents. And then legs came out of it and it just started walking away. And I remember thinking, wow, there's so much I don't know about the ocean and there's so many bizarre creatures out there. And that really brought home for me the sense of awe that I felt with conservation and animal behavior and just wanting to learn more about it. Absolutely. I mean, we brought this up with Angelique, but the access that we now have to underwater spaces is amazing and kind of totally unprecedented, right? Like a hundred years ago, it would have been impossible. I mean, obviously humans are not built to breathe underwater. So the fact that we can understand and manage these places is incredible. One of the things that I find amazing about diving and in particular doing research or spending a lot of time in one place like Angelique does is that you can almost come to understand these marine spaces in the way that you understand a place on land and you can kind of get to know it, like know which animals live in which places usually or what kind of dynamics they have with each other. And it's really magical. I mean, I have never spent as much time as Angelique has in Tubataha, obviously. I would love to get to that point someday. That's true. I think another interesting thing, though, is that even though she spent so much time in that reserve, it's a bit of a dichotomy in the way that when you stay in one spot for long enough, you might not be able to notice the changes. So, for example, people who have kids, for example, they see them every day. They notice the changes less than people who see them only once in a while. But here... It's really interesting to see how, despite the fact that she's been in that area for so long, she still manages to see all these different transitions and pick up on the changes. Absolutely. It's almost like she was wearing different glasses when she was either there in a tourism capacity or then in a conservation capacity. And it was interesting how she said that she almost couldn't think about the place in the same way or really like perceive the ways in which it might have changed because she was kind of looking at it through these different lenses. Another thing that I found really interesting was when she was talking about her first dives into Bataha and how they were so different from anywhere that she had been diving before. And it reminded me of this concept of shifting baselines, which we use quite often in ecology and conservation. And essentially the idea behind it is that your perception of what is normal is shaped by what you have witnessed before. So across generations, you might end up with different expectations for the environment, and you might not realize that a place has changed or become degraded because you didn't witness anything different in your lifetime. I think that's really interesting and also connects to something else that we touched on a little bit during the episode, which is this idea of pristine environment being somehow of higher value than uh, environment that may be more degraded and I think it's really important to emphasize that even degraded areas still have values and I think especially for people who live in urban settings you know it might just be your local park or it might be an area that other people might think really degraded but actually it's still very much of value for communities because you still bring them this sense of nature being around them so I think it's important to remember that even degraded areas still have a role to play and shouldn't be completely discarded. 
Absolutely. I mean, the reason that some of those areas are degraded is because people come into contact with those spaces so often, right? And and actually are gaining a lot of benefits from them. I think that absolutely can be a danger in kind of holding up these very, I mean, even the word pristine is seems a bit dangerous. My entire PhD is about human-made structures in the ocean. And in what ways is marine life colonizing those structures? What values do they bring to humans and how do they change our perceptions of the ocean? So I think that, yeah, we really need to be thinking about all of these different marine spaces and the ways that people interact with them. Actually, it's really interesting that you're bringing in this uh, human aspect because what I wanted to talk about next is also the fact that I loved how she put so much emphasis on the fact that she's a people's person. And I think it's often undervalued or people put it as kind of like a soft skill that people may have. But it's so important in whatever role you might have because, you know, for me in communication, it's also really important skills because if I don't build trust with different stakeholders, then people won't bring me stories and I won't have anything to work on. And I think that's true in so many different different settings in conservation. Absolutely. I think trust is such a delicate and important thing, which can be really difficult to achieve in conservation, particularly when you're working in spaces which are so important to people, as Tupataha clearly is. And it just seems like Angelique builds those relationships so effectively. Yes, and also it was so interesting when she mentioned that what the community was upset about at some point was the fact that the name of the community wasn't in the name of the marine reserve. And I thought that was, you know, in a, in a sense, it was just beautiful because then they had this connection to that place and to that space. And they were just like, why are we not represented in that name? It, it's this disconnect, which I thought was, again, really interesting. Yeah, and I think, again, it speaks to Angelique's skill in creating that sense of shared purpose and ownership in the management of Tubataha which means that people felt empowered to make those changes and support conservation in in that area in order to make sure that it would be maintained into the future. As we're coming to the end of our first season, I just also wanted to say that it's been such a pleasure talking to such a variety of conservationists and just learning about all of these sides and perspectives of conservation. Definitely, and I really enjoyed the fact that we had such a range of conservationists. Like, you know, we went through eco-poetry to field conservation and then to theatre making. Hearing about what makes people optimistic or what makes them keep going is, is really inspiring in its own way. But it was also, I think, a lot of very interesting things in the challenges that they shared with us. And I think that's also where we had some interesting discussions. Yeah, and I think even starting to think about optimism in itself, to think about what are the ideas that lead us to be optimistic and also what even is optimism? Is it persistence? Like, is it hope? It seems like everyone has a slightly different perspective. Yeah, and even just hearing the choices that people made for our very last question every time, like the species they picked, and more importantly, why they picked it or why they decided not to pick, was really fascinating. And I felt gave us a completely different perspective on all these different guests that we've had. Totally. I mean, I think so much of conservation is prioritizing. I know that we had some resistance from people about that question. I think it was a really interesting lens. I think we'll probably switch it up in season two. But 
it was really cool to hear people's answers and even to hear that resistance because I do think that a single species approach to conservation is not the way forward. Yeah, we were definitely quite provocative with this question, but I think it definitely led to interesting conversations. But if you listeners have any suggestions for a question that you think we should ask every single guest on season two, then, you know, please reach out. Let us know on Twitter or on Instagram. Use the hashtag conservation optimism to reach out. And we would also love to hear you know, your thoughts about season one. Which episode was your favourite? What themes did you enjoy? What would you like to have heard a bit more of? Let us know. And what would you like to hear about next? So if there are any particular people that you think would be really fascinating, then get in touch with us and let us know. And again, while we go on our break until probably spring, make sure to share the podcast, make sure to subscribe and help other people find it. So goodbye for now and we will speak to you again soon. See you in spring. This episode was funded by an ESRC Impact Acceleration Account Grant through the University of Oxford. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.